listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today's Living Writers episode is a pre-recorded interview with Billy Bragg, which was recorded when he was in town in July. I'll tell you where I'm going, boy. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is a road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. I may be right, may be wrong. You know you're going to miss me when I'm gone. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is a road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. Good afternoon, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so excited to have Billy Bragg here in the studio. How exciting is that, T? <laughs> it's completely exciting. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, Billy. Thank you so much for coming down to the studio while you're in town. Always it's... happy to come along and talk about Skiffle. You know that, T. <laughs> always. It's a, it's a promise you'll keep I do. Skiffle today, tomorrow, mm-hmm. and always. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. I should say we're taping this program. It's the 18th of July, 2017. And you're in town with Literati Bookstore and The Ark to talk about your book, Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. That's it. And what a book it is. It is, isn't it? I've read it to cover to cover. It's, well it's, quite a, it's quite a tome. <laughs> it is a tome. It's a tome. What is it, like 439 pages? Yeah, 431. Yeah. I, I wrote so, it down. Yeah, yeah. And, and the... 120,000 words. It took me and... ages to get me in the right order. <sighs> well, I want to talk about process with you if you're process up for it, too. About. But first, I'll read your short bio in the back on the desk cover of the book. I must say... I love the photo, too, here. It's very majestic. Oh, so I'm, I'm being an author there. It's not like a normal, you know, rock star picture. I had to be an author for that one. So I thought, well, what do my authors look like? And I suddenly thought, was... Mount Rushmore. <laughs> That's what I've gone for. May I say, what, ask, what are you thinking here? Like, what is the thought? Like, what was your... One day I'm going to be in Ann Arbor talking about this book. It better look good. <laughs> What's going to look good in Ann Arbor? So get your copy, everyone. Yeah. Um... When I went in Sam's outfit, as I did that look, and they were like, Whoa! <laughs> Hello, Sam, if you're listening. That's the guy. (laughs) Billy Bragg was born in 1957, the peak of Skiffle. Peak Skiffle. In Barking, and for over 30 years has been a tireless recording artist, performer, and activist. His albums, including Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy, Talking with the Taxman about poetry, the treatise to coincide with the Queen's Golden Jubilee, England, half English, Tooth and Nail, and most recently with Joe Henry, Shine a Light, field recordings from the Great American Railroad. In 2015, he published his selected lyrics, A Lover Sings. He has enjoyed a number one hit single, had a street named after him, been the subject of a South Bank show, appeared on stage at Wembley Stadium, curated left field at Glastonbury, shared spotted dick with a cabinet minister in the House of Commons cafeteria, been mentioned in Bob Dylan's memoir, and shaken hands with the Queen. (laughs) Can I just say, a spotted dick is a dessert for those of you listening who might be shocked about what exactly. I was doing with that cabinet minister. It wasn't anything nefarious. <laughs> and it com- that. completely clears the FCC, like any sort <laughs> of rules, you know. Google it. But, but why does, like, why did they, like, why do the English have this as a dessert? Because it's, it's, it's kind it's, of stodgy. 
It's a stodgy dessert. Basically, I think we're, we're living in northern climes. It's a, it's one of those things. It's sort of northern damp sort of. Uh, uh, we don't have that dry heat you have over here, and I think that's kind of it comes with that really. It's you don't really see it so much. When I was a kid, we used to see it all the time. It's one of the things from the same period of the bookies. You know, it's one of the things they made after the war when they only had half a dozen sultanas. Uh, you know, <laughs> raisins for yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for uh, us. Yeah, Yanks. that's right. Yeah, but they, have, they couldn't afford raisins. They only had sultanas. <laughs> oh, are they do- actually? Yeah, they. Are. Oh, right. I'm sorry. They are. I'm trying to be all <laughs> raisins are little kind of little black Inter- things, but a sultana is a slightly large one. Tends oh, to be a rather sort of the golden. Golden, or? yeah, yeah. Oh. I think they're a different grape. Oh, you're... they're a little bit juicier. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> and this, it, this is about. We're going to be talking a lot about produce today. Yes. <laughs> Living writers. Yeah. And, and rationing. <laughs> Let's see. So, Billy, um, can we talk? Start with the song yeah. that we heard at the top of the yeah. program. Lonnie Donegan singing Rock Island Lion, which was got into the British charts in uh, January 1956. <clears throat> it marks a watershed, really, in, in popular culture in our country. Donegan is the first British artist to get the charts playing a guitar. This had never been done before. Our song, uh, singers at the time were, were mostly um, either wearing taffeta dresses or uh, uh, dinner jackets and bow ties, even if they were singing a Hank Williams song. And they had, like, names given to them, right? No, that, comes, so... that comes oh. a bit later. These are, the, these are the guys who are singing with the big bands. You know, they're kind of what we call crooners. Oh, oh right, they're like crooners. crooners, yeah. And Donegan comes in, and he's not singing with a big band. He's singing with a, a skiffle band. And that comprises of him on the acoustic guitar, a guy named Chris Barber playing double bass, and a woman called Beryl Bryden playing a washboard. And uh, he records this this album actually in the context of a trad jazz album in 1954. But it, when it gets released in 56, it kind of sparks what could best be described as a craze because skiffle was more like fidget spinners than it was uh, like, um, you know, hip-hop in that sense. What's a fidget spinner? A fidget spinner. Tea, is something that's currently a craze in school playgrounds across the world. It's like a, <laughs> a like a three prong thing, and you spin it in your fingers, and it makes a weird noise, and you hold the middle of it, and it spins round. Oh, you so ch- like a top, but it's in your hand, or so kind of, yeah. Oh, okay. But it's basically one <laughs> of those things that the school school kids are absolutely obsessed with, and um, that's what skiffle was I'm like. I'm so disconnected from the youth, Billy. Really. Youth culture, you're about fidget spinners. <laughs> but what um, the heck? Uh, but uh, it, it it was a playground craze, and every Sentient schoolboy uh, learned three chords on the guitar in in the in the space of about eighteen months, and these schoolboys uh, were, you know, thirteen-year-old, um, fourteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old. Those were the ages, respectively, of George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and John Lennon when I saw Lonnie Donegan, who we just heard there playing Liverpool in 1956. You know, and George Harrison already was playing the guitar, and then. he went to all six shows. Apparently, he did. Went to every. He was a fanboy because he was there for a week. Uh, he was a total <laughs> fanboy. He found where Donegan was living and went and got his autograph. McCartney uh, went to see him and came back and told his daddy he wanted to get rid of his trumpet and buy a guitar. And Lennon uh, formed his skiffle group, the Quarrymen, within two weeks of Donegan appearing in Liverpool. So if you imagine that catalyst right across the country... Right, um, right. And, and working class youth, yeah. it was like a, a movement. Because yeah. do it yourself, DIY. Exactly, DIY. It's basically um, what's the key thing about about the, the skiffle craze is that young people are making their own music rather than taking the music that had been offered to them previously. Um, British pop music up until that point was basically a kind of like a, a jazz-based confection for adults. And for, <laughs> ch- for, for young people, there was novelty records like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? But Donegan comes along and he's something completely different, completely out 
you know, nothing like this has been heard on British radio before. And it's the post-war generation. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a key, that's a key thing. It's it's a generation, um, Harrison, McCartney, and particularly John Lennon, who's born in 1940, because of post-war rationing. John Lennon is 14 before he can go in a sweet shop and buy what he wants because rationing in my country doesn't end until July 1954, just before Donegan records Rock Island Line. Which is crazy to think that after World War II, this was... Mm. the. the this was what was still like the, the some things were rationed. Of it. Some things were rationed after the war that were never rationed during the war. Bread was rationed in Britain during the war because the British government had a responsibility to feed the people in the uh, British zone of Germany, and their oh. infrastructure was broken. Nobody got the crops in. There weren't any crops. So the bread that we had in the UK, some of it had to be shared with the people in Europe. So bread went on the ration. And, you know, people didn't like this. I mean, the the Labour Party lost the 1951 election over rationing, basically. But you've got to think of that generation as a generation who have, you know, had to put up with what someone else decides. You know, they've got basically the government saying you can't have this. And then you've got the BBC, all their culture is coming from the BBC, one radio station, well, two radio stations, but, you know, not really that different. One's a kind of classical music and talk station. The other one's a kind of housewife's choice station. So when... Housewife's choice. Mm, another show. That's another a time. show. That's a, that's a radio show. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, that's that, but that was their kind of angle. And when... Um, Rock and Roll comes along just before Rock Iron Line comes out. In the middle of 1955, Rock Around the Clock is a, is a, a hit in the UK because people can hear it on Radio Luxembourg, which is broadcasting from Europe. Um, the BBC decide to not play it or to only play it a little bit. And it's almost like they're rationing Rock and Roll. And the kids are so furious that they're like, you know what? You can stick it. I'm going to get a guitar and I'm going to play this myself. And Donegan comes along on the back of that and there is some uh, uh, suggestion that his song was a hit because it had the word rock in the title like rock uh, rock around the clock right right um the kids realize by hearing donegan you know um here's a guy playing this american music and playing a guitar but he's actually not an american <laughs> you know because before guitars if you heard a guitar in, in our culture on the radio it would be of, often played by someone who you might call an outsider like a cowboy singing cowboys <laughs> are very popular yeah there were bluesmen people like big bill brunsey would tour the uk yes. you might see him on the radio uh, hear, see, hear him on the radio and calypsonians because calypso uh, was the culture the sort of stereotypical culture of the first wave of immigration to my country from 1948 onwards there was a mass immigration from the caribbean and after the west indies cricket team defeated england for the first time in 1950 calypso which comes from one island from trinidad kind of became the, the the identifier of West Indian culture for British people. And they all play guitars. So mm. the point about all these things, bluesmen, calypsonians and cowboys, they're all outsiders. Right. They're all outsiders in British culture. So by picking up the guitar, these British kids, these British working class kids are taking on their outsider identity. It's kind of like giving the finger to mainstream culture and particularly their parents and the idea that they have to have their culture mediated. If they can make it themselves, then they can do it wherever they like and do whatever they like with it. So in that sense, it's uh, it's very much very similar to what happened with punk rock. There's a saying we had in punk rock, here's three chords, now form a band. Well, that's the, the bedrock of Skiffle as well. Well, well, let's take a short break, and then when we come back, do you mind? Let's talk about uh, contextualizing it, where it falls. like with Because you mentioned trad jazz, mm -hmm. so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Of course. Bit. Billy, what should we hear? What song should we, we hear? At the well, break? I think um, what, what would help now if, if we heard um, a song called uh, Southside Shake. It's track number two by Dan Burley and his Skiffle Boys from 1947. <laughs> 
even though he's a U.S. Right? The U.S. Okay. Oh. Context. With this. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Billy Bragg is here. Um, Billy, can you tell us a little bit about what we just Yeah, heard? we just heard a track called Southside Shake by Dan Burley and his Skiffle Boys from 1947. And Dan is a great example of what Skiffle meant in the United States of America. A skiffle is, uh, was in, in uh, Chicago in the 1920s. A skiffle was a slang word for a rent party where African-Americans trying to make money for rent would uh, brew up some hooch, <laughs> uh, cook some food and, uh, and throw a party where they charge people to come in and there would always be someone playing barrel house piano. And that was an event. It was a skiffle. OK, now... An event. Yeah, an event, yeah. And in 1947, Dan Burley, who as a teenager had played at those skiffles... As part of the trad jazz thing, he someone said to him, why don't you make a record of those great old tunes you used to play at the Skiffle 20 years ago? And he was like, yeah, cool. So he got together some guys and he sat down and he played all those South Side <laughs> Shake. I mean, the South Side of Chicago, that's where they, they all lived, you know. So he makes this album of songs that he used to play at these rent parties and he calls his band Dan Burley and his Skiffle Boys. But he's talking about a party, so it would be like Dan Burley and his party crew. Might be like that, yeah, right, okay. So that's where that's where the word comes into existence now. And that's where Bill Collier might have. Well, in first in, seen in it? the UK, in the UK, around the same time, there's a trad jazz revival, and <clears throat> it's very difficult for the British guys to to learn to play trad jazz because all they've got is the records. They haven't seen anybody play trad jazz because trad jazz has gone out of style. Jazz is swing at the moment. It's it's crooners. It's big bands. It's Benny Goodman. And what happens is the trad guys, they believe that, that jazz has lost its soul and they want to go back to how it originally was in New Orleans. Because it's becoming too commercialized. Exactly, yeah, and, and exactly. sort of BBC approved. It's, no, no, something. in America. Oh, no. This starts in America. Oh, okay. It starts in America, yeah. Okay. The trad revival begins in America. Okay. And there are two parts to it, the rejection of commerciality. On one hand, there's the trad guys who want to go back to basics. Mm -hmm. and, but there's another group of people who are the musicians, the young musicians, who want to go forward and they invent bebop. And although they eventually become deadly enemies, it's the same impulse. It's a rejection of the, the white bread jazz that's being played or passed off, you know, the big bands, you know, you're the saxophonist, singer, and, you know, 30 people. They're like, no, this isn't <laughs> it. Yeah, this isn't it. So um, the British uh, guys who want to play trad jazz have only got records um, of made during that period. New, the thing about New Orleans jazz is um, traditional New Orleans jazz. It has no soloists. It's a collective effort. So, you know, Ensemble. Yeah. Louis Armstrong is opposite because he played solos. You know, he went to New Orleans, he went to Chicago, that's it, it's over, you know. So the <laughs> British guys are trying to get back, and they've got these few records 
But on these records, because they recorded in the 1920s, the, the, the recording equipment was so primitive, the guys playing blew really hard so they could be heard on the record. So the British jazz guys, they're only teenagers, <laughs> they think, OK, well, that's how you play. That's how they blew really hard. Blow so, your lungs yeah. out. so after about 30 minutes at a gig, their lips are so numb they can't play. So what they do is they put down their brass instruments and they pick up guitars, acoustic guitars, and they play what, broadly speaking, would be called Lead Belly's Repertoire. Led Belly, the greatest American folk singer that ever lived, whose, whose repertoire stretches across from everything from the blues to gospel to English folk songs to Zydeco to everything, you know, wrote his own songs, was like a sponge for American culture. So how do you think it was that that was the music they went to? Because it was American, yep. and but they were British and yep. playing because it. They, but it was with the guitar. Yep. Was that what with yep. the it's guitar two, was the yeah, key? Yeah, the two, there's two reasons why they went to Led Belly. Uh, um, one, because his records were available in London in the United States Information Service, which was across the road from the British Embassy where they had a collection of the songs made by the Library of Congress which could be lent out to people. So they got Lead Belly from there. And because Lead Belly was, if you go to those early recordings, there's lots of great little blues guys, but Lead Belly is like a colossus. And he still is, in my mind, is a, a colossus. After reading your book, <clears throat> he is to me as yeah, well. Yeah, well, he was, to, he was to these guys. So they went to Lead Belly's repertoire and uh, they, uh, they played Lead Belly songs till their lips feeling came back in their lips and they called this this session where they played the acoustic guitars the breakdown session the breakdown session but these breakdown sessions were quite popular they got, started to get more popular than the than the trad jazz at some point, much to the annoyance of some of the guys. Especially Ken Collier. Well, yeah, Mr. Collier, who's the guy, the, the guy yeah, the guy who started this was a guy named Ken Collier who was a purist. But what happens is um Ken Collier's band is doing a radio uh, program for the BBC and they decide to do some of these breakdown songs, some of these Lead Belly songs. So, but it's a completely different band. It's not Ken Collier leading it. It's a different setup. And the BBC producer rightly says, well, what, what's this then? Who's band? <laughs> this isn't the Ken Collier jazz band. Who are these guys? So Collier's, and there's a washboard up there too oh, at yeah, this point, right? Yeah, okay. There's a washboard, acoustic guitar, <laughs> double bass. Um, uh, Ken Collier's brother, uh, Bill, who manages the band, uh, he says... Because the guy needs something to write on his form. He says, this is the Ken Collier Skiffle Band. Skiffle Group, rather. Sorry, Skiffle is very important. It's a group, not a band. Ken Collier Skiffle Group. And so that's what the guy writes down on his form, the Ken Collier Skiffle Group. But what Bill Collier has done in that moment is completely changed the meaning of Skiffle. It means, in the United States of America, it means a rent party, an event. But in the United Kingdom, it now means British guys playing Lead Belly's repertoire on guitars and... Uh, washboard. So skiffle becomes one of those words that has a different meaning in the United States of America. There's some words you have to be very careful how you say them in America because they mean a different thing like, for instance, pants. <laughs> Another thing would be uh, tea. What you drink in America? It's definitely not tea. And the other one that gets you in a lot of trouble as well, socialism. You know, has a completely different Amen. meaning <laughs> in the United States of America. So uh, skiffle is kind of like that because skiffle, um, as a as a subgenre of American roots music, is indigenous to the United Kingdom. There was never anything like it at the same time in in the in the US. And and I base that not on what the music sounds like because it does sound like it sounds a bit like jug. It sounds a bit like it's all sorts of things, you know. But I, I say there was never a movement like that because of the age of the majority of the participants. Van Morrison was 12 when he started playing skiffle. You know, there was no movement here in the 1940s and 1950s right. where there were the where majority of, 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 you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds were learning to play guitar. It, what happens is it's your, your uh, their contemporaries, particularly their white contemporaries in the US, are learning guitar when they're 18, 19 and 20. By that time, the skiffle kids are already in Hamburg. 
They're so far ahead. And it's because of that, because they have that kind of two years, 18 months ahead of your teenagers, that when the Beatles break America in 1964, there's a full cohort of bands already road hard and been playing for 10 years <laughs> to take the American charts. It's Skiffle, in that sense, is the nursery for the British invasion of the American charts of 64, 65. In fact, in that period, there's a British artist at number one in America for 52 weeks out of 104, and every single one of them originated in a skiffle band, apart from Petula Clark, who is an exception that proves the rule. But, yeah, so that, that's, that's the, the relevance of it. And it all starts with Donegan uh, playing Rock Island Line. And the, the kids or the young people... They are kids. The, you say kids because they are. The they're kids, like, like, you know, they, now they'll be out with fidget spinners out in the <laughs> playground. But seeing, like, the possibilities, like seeing how they can be part of it, so empowering. Hugely empowering. But I think there was something else going on as well. When, when the folk revival did begin in the United States of America, which is in the later 50s, because we're talking about in the UK, 56, 57, 58, folk revival over here really starts with Tom Dooley and that, you know, sort of comes to a head. When I say starts, I don't mean begins, I mean becomes visible to popular culture and the way Skiffle became visible, because it was going on before Donegan. But when that becomes visible, bands like the New Lost City Ramblers are, uh, appear, you know, and they're doing a similar kind of thing. They're the same sort of age as Lonnie Donegan and those guys. But what they're doing by going to Appalachia to rediscover people like Doc Watson and Roscoe Holcomb, they're kind of b trying to build a bridge back to the past in the United States of America and reconnect so with that. Back yeah. Backwards. Whereas the Skiffle kids are desperately trying to escape the past because their past is the war and rationing. They are trying to make the future happen. And the way they're doing that is with a guitar. They're looking forward and they're trying, they're trying to build a bridge to the future and ultimately they build a bridge that crosses the Atlantic and goes to the top of the American charts. I mean, it's an incredible story. And that's why, that's why I think I really wrote this book with, with American audience in, in mind because most Americans aren't aware of the backstory of this, how American music influenced these kids and how they sort of turned it into something else and it galvanised them and, and empowered them and, uh, and led to so much of the great music that was made in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, really up until 1977 and punk is the first time you get a generation who didn't start in Skiffle having hits. I mean, everybody, even Mighty Boy from ABBA, Bjorn from ABBA, was in a skiffle bag. You know? <laughs> That's hard to believe, isn't it? There's and a, the, the Bee Gees, you said, too, in the book. There's yeah. a great clip of uh, Jimmy Page on YouTube on a TV programme, a BBC TV programme, when he's, I think he's 13 or 14 years old, and he's singing a song called Mama Don't Allow No Skiffle Playing Around Here. <laughs> and uh, this rather avuncular BBC... Guy, as they are, hilarious. Well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Do you want to be a skiffler? And Jimmy Page, but Jimmy Page, bless him, says, No, I want to discover a cure for cancer, which is which was our loss, I suppose. Led Zeppelin's game, I know if, if it's still if it's still out there, yeah. yes, Jimmy Page, he's yes. out there, he's out there. Yes, so, is. yeah, let's um, should we have a little listen to Ken, Ken Collier because Perfect. he's a kind of key let's, character in there. Both, Track four, both, um, both. on this CD it was recorded in 1954. This is Ken Collier's skiffle group with uh, another Lead Belly song, it's always Lead Belly. Take this hammer, take this hammer, carry it to the captain. Gone. 
tell him I'm gone if he asks you. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Billy Bragg is here. Roots, Radicals, and Rockers. How Skiffle Changed the World. The book on the table with us. So, Billy, this song with Ken Collier. Ken Collier. Ken yeah. Collier is an absolute key figure. <clears throat> because Ken Collier is the guy who kind of makes trad happen in the UK. He's... Uh, obsessed with traditional music but but unfortunately because of a dispute between the american federation of musicians and the british musicians union no american band toured in the uk between 1935 and 1955 and vice versa i mean it was it began with a ban on american bands american american authorities only allowed british band leaders to tour in the united states of america if they took out american citizenship (laughs) <laughs> okay, so you can understand more why more easily done at that time, perhaps, but still, you can understand quite why, a the, why the musicians' union might have taken exception <laughs> yeah, to that. Exactly. So anyway, whatever for whatever reason, I mean, it was a total. Apparently, you know, we were recruiting though. Uh, everyone, every everyone knows, everyone knows my feelings about unions, and I think everyone should be in a union, of course, of yes. course. But that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous that two, uh, you know, people who believe in music. And, and empathy and breaking down barriers. You do something so stupid as that. It's unbelievable. Anyway, let's yeah, not... Let's... And there aren't any answers in the book about no. it. Not really. I can't think... I don't... You know, I can't see the sense of it now. And, and it still puzzles people in, in the UK. But, I mean, imagine if no British band had toured... Uh, uh, no American band had toured Great Britain between, let's say, uh, 1956 and 1976. I mean, right. no, no Albert Hall, you know, no Judas, no Hendrix, you know, and right. vice versa. I mean, no Beatles. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, anyway... That happened. So the young uh, jazz guys couldn't see anyone play. The only way you could learn to play this stuff was to see someone and hear someone live. And they couldn't do that. So Collier wanted to get to New Orleans because he knew some of these old guys were still playing the old trad jazz in the old way. And they were. And they were playing it in terrible little sort of hole-in-the-wall places where they were playing it to people who... uh, of their age, you know, people in their 60s and 70s. It wasn't very popular. Um, One of the problems with this music is that for um, uh, young African-Americans in the 50s, the music that these guys liked, particularly the blues and lead belly, I think it reminded them of of poverty and bondage. So it wasn't very popular. The the hipsters were into bebop. And you could see that. That makes Mm. sense why that would would almost have to be a rejection. And the the guitar was part of that. That's why the young hip hip jazz guys were wanted to they wanted to play brass instruments they wanted to play bebop or piano you know Thelonious Monk and those kind of guys you know there's, there's not there's very few African American jazz guitar players from that period the guitar is grandpa's instrument mm. you know they they too are trying to make the future happen in the same way you know it's the same impulse it's not an uncommon impulse they're trying to do it but they're trying to do it by pushing the envelope of jazz and um, so in many ways nobody wanted to hear this music and Collier. It's breaking his heart because he knows these guys are still alive, so he hatches a plan. At the time, there were restrictions on how much money you could take out of the UK. I think it was something ridiculous, like £5 a person, because they're worried about uh, money flooding out of the country. And you could only get in the United States of America if you had a work permit, which you had to get a job in America, which you couldn't do. So he hatched a plan. He joined the Merchant Navy. What are you prepared to do exactly, for your yeah, art, right? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and um, after three or four different trips where he didn't get anywhere near New Orleans, he finally got a boat to Mobile, Alabama, where he jumped ship, and he went to New Orleans, and he got a month visa. He left the ship, he got a month visa, he went to New Orleans, he found these guys who, who were on these records he loved. He had his trumpet player, he had his trumpet with him, and, 
you know, they were kind of like really pleased. This is, you know, this kid from England who thinks they're brilliant. No one else is giving him any attention. <laughs> and not only does he think they're brilliant, he knows all their stuff. And also, so, because he knows and all their records. he's younger, too. Yeah, yeah, and he knows all their records so he can play. So they, he sits in with them. And they all play together. And he writes to his brother, Bill, who passes them on to the Melody Maker, which is the main uh, jazz weekly newspaper. And through that, uh, Ken, his adventures... Because people can't believe it. I mean, going to New Orleans back then for Britain was like going to the moon. Right. You know, it really is. It's like... So he plays with them and gets into trouble because it's not really a dumb thing, white kid playing with African-American guys. So when he goes to renew his um, visa... They arrest him because he's a day late. The day he had to re- renew his visa was December the 25th. Like so it was closed, yeah. right? Yeah. So they arrest him. That's... They arrest him. They... And because it's... Normally, if it was a, a, a visa infringement, you'd put him under house arrest in a hotel before deporting him. They put him in jail. It's definitely more than just right. something else they're going sending, on. They're Something's trying to send on. him a message yeah. of some yeah. sort. And, and to other people, definitely. too. Definitely, yeah. definitely. So now, but as far as he's concerned, Ken Collier... Lead belly fan. He's like, I'm in jail. I'm getting, I'm getting life experience here. I've got something to He's sing about. He's in jail in America, in, <laughs> right. in, in, in Louisiana, where Lead Belly was in jail. Yeah. You know, so you know who's going to come back to the UK and sing penitentiary blues? He authentically. is, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Nobody. So he's, he's sending all this off to the melody maker, and his 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 brand is like up here. So before it, there were brands. Yeah, I'm using the co- to- common parlance. Um, and and so what happens is uh, he's. How he gets home is resolved when they deport him. They send him home. But he comes back like a conquering hero. He comes back like sort of Moses from the mountain. With and the... isn't he on a luxury liner or something? Yeah, he's on the USS America. Yeah. So merchant yeah. marine yeah. cooking meals yeah. on yeah. the way over, on the on way the, back. Yeah, he's on the, he's on the, the blue ribbon SS America. But he comes back like the, the, the trad jazz Moses with the yeah. tablets. This is how you do it. And that's kind of like his credibility. Uh, that leads to the skiffle boom. Lonnie Donegan is the banjo player in the first Ken Collier band. Chris Barber is the, the trombone player. And together, it's there. Uh, basically, Ken Collier is a bit difficult to get on with. He's a purist. And when in your interviews for this book, is that something you came upon or was that just yeah. kind of known out there? Or? It's kind of out there. It's kind of out there, you know. And um, he just he just wanted to play New Orleans jazz. And anybody who put in any sort of essence of, of modern jazz or anything, he frowned upon it. And nobody could frown like Ken Collier. He was a specialist. <laughs> he was an absolute specialist. So what happens is... Um, Ken he Collier. does look like a serious guy. Yeah. And in your book, you have a photo of him yeah. when he gets to New Orleans, I mm, believe. Yeah. And his jacket, there seems to be a sticker that says smile. Yeah, and he's frowning. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's a great picture, isn't it? That picture kind of sums him up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great picture. But he was an amazing guy. I mean, I mean he's the, he is one of the great unsung heroes in the story of British rock. Because mm. what he does, although he has, although he disowns it because he doesn't like Skiffle, really. He's, he wants to play jazz. It kind of leads to the Beatles. You know, if, if he was around now... I'd like to think he might, you know, mellowed a bit, and sadly passed away uh, at the end of the century. But um, he tries to fire Lonnie Donegan. He doesn't like Donegan. He's too much of a wind-up. But <laughs> well, we heard his voice yeah. at, the, at the beginning. At yeah, the top yeah, of the Donegan. Program. Yeah, he's a wind-up merchant. Now he's kind of like a, you know, he's kind of a bit of a needle guy. And he's like so emotive. It <laughs> yeah, sounds yeah. Like in and always he kills the songs as well. He's probably the best blues singer, you know, that we have in the UK at that time. He, he sings like nobody. In fact. Joe Boyd, the producer of, uh, you know, uh, Fable Convention, Nick Drake and R.E.M., a friend of mine, he told me in the book that before Bob Dylan and people like Jeff Muldoor, he thought Lane Donegan was the best white blues singer he'd heard. Because at the time, in 56, 57, uh, white 
guys were so aware of the racial connotations of Amos and Andy in singing the blues that they were very careful and very polite with the subject. Whereas Donegan has no idea of that. He just no. lashes at it, you know. Yeah. So, so you know, he was, he was, he was probably the best. But we had that, and you know, before the blues uh, boom, Donegan was the ki- he was he was just really good at it. He, he emoted so much, so um, they try and throw him. <laughs> Collier tries to fire him, but the band, which is a collective, take a vote and they fire Collier. Uh, so the two bands them's break. The breaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Collier makes a, ba- a a jazz record with some skiffle on, and the Chris Barber band make a jazz record with some skiffle on. But they they um, don't have enough material. So they're a bit worried what they're going to do because they've only got one day in the studio and the, and the, the, the producer's really angry because he spent £30 on this record, 45 bucks. So it's like Donegan says, let's do some skiffle. So they say, OK. So they record a couple of skiffle songs, <laughs> Rock Island Line and uh, uh, John Henry. And they put this record out and it's, you know, it does OK, but no one's really mad about it. But the significant thing is that this, this Rock Island Line... Recorded on the 13th of July, 1954. Uh, no drums. Uh, old blues song sped up. Just a week before in Memphis, Tennessee, Sam Phillips is trying to get a young truck driver to sing an old Ernest Tubb song. And he's, he's brought a couple of guys in. One plays the bass, the other plays electric guitar. And they're trying to work with this kid, and it's going nowhere. It's just not working. So he says, take a break. They crack a few uh, Cokes. And the kid picks up the acoustic guitar and starts goofing around on this speed. He speeds up this old blues song called That's All Right Mama. And the bass player thinks it's really funny what he's doing, so he plays a funny riff as well. So the guitar player joins in and Sam Phillips, who's in the control room, says, hey, 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 what's that? (laughs) And the bass player, I don't know. He says, well, back it up and find out where it starts and do it again. And he records it. And that's Elvis Presley's first recording for Sun Records. And the, the significance is not only is it just a week before Rock Island Line, there's no drums. It's a you know a very very sort of uh, percussive double bass leads the song through, um, and it's an old blues song sped up as a way of saving a, a salvaging a, a recording session that was going nowhere. I think it's more than synchronicity. So, so exactly. I think it's more than synchronicity. Well, it seems like this real through line across the pond, really, between the the two countries. It, so, did you discover that in your research, like when you were uncovering? Is that one yeah, of the, it's the one connections of, you, know, you yeah, made? Yeah, it's one of the. One of the dots I was joining when I was trying to put across this record, because I think you have to see, if you're looking for something similar that happened in the United States of America, rockabilly would be the thing, I think, because rockabilly as a form, which is, you know, a a double bass and two Mm -hmm. guitars, was itself eclipsed by rock and roll as we think of rock and roll, you know, piano, Mm -hmm. drums, horns. But when Elvis is doing his first records, that's pure rockabilly. And and the Johnny Burnett trio, the rock and roll trio, um, which is probably the greatest rockabilly band ever, other than, uh, you know, Sun Sessions Elvis. When Donegan toured in the United States of America, Donegan has a hit in the US with Rock Island Line. If you can believe that. Coles to Newcastle, he gets to, to number eight in the charts. And he goes on a rock and roll tour. So he's tour. a little bit of a, a star here, too, yeah, for a time. Well, people heard him. People mm. heard him. And apparently, um, it was the uh, the first record that Phil Spector ever played on guitar was Donegan's Rock Island Line. Johnny Ooh. Cash's first uh, album opens, Sun Record op- opens with Rock Island Line. That seems redemptive. That sounds great. <laughs> so what happens is, what happens is that um, when... when um, uh, uh, Don- Donegan comes over uh, and, and has a hit in the United States of America. This kind of like uh, sort of st- strange process of going across the, the channel, sort of like it's, it has a sort of reverse effect on, on, on American music. And when Donegan goes out on tour, 
It's just him and his acoustic guitar. He goes on this, this kind of weird package tour with Chuck Berry and the Platters and, and the Rock and Roll Trio, the Johnny Bennett Trio. And every day, you have to do six shows a day. <laughs> And and they That's he, grueling. Yeah. He has to play two songs with the pit orchestra and he and he doesn't have any music for them. So Johnny Burnett says to him, Listen, man, why don't you let us back you up on these? He plays Rock on Online and uh, Long uh, Lost John. And Donegan says, Oh being Donegan says, oh, I can't afford that, mate. And, <laughs> and Johnny <laughs> Burnett says Wasn't he born in Scotland? <laughs> Johnny Johnny Burnett's you know how to say that on radio. Johnny Burnett says that um, My apologies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take it back. I'll get in trouble. Huh? Uh, Johnny Burnett says, Listen, man, it's about the music. We love the music. So one of the great rockabilly bands of all time uh, meets what the great the King of Skiffle, and they recognise each other as brothers from the same mother. You know, that's a very, very. I wish there's no recordings of it, of course, but it was with that oh. moment, and that's that's what that's what Skiffle is. It's kind of like rockabilly, but the difference is there weren't no twelve-year-olds. You know, there weren't two hundred and fifty thousand twelve-year-olds <laughs> playing rockabilly <laughs> right, right, as a right. result. So that's right. the that's this the kind is, of big it difference. is different. It yeah. is. It is. But here's the thing: the, the weird thing that Donegan does, he kind of watermarks Rock Island Line. Because he introduces a toll gate into the story, which never was a toll gate in, in American railroads. I don't know why he does it. You probably couldn't understand what Lebelly's saying. But the interesting <laughs> thing is, so anybody that sings the song, mentions the toll gate, is taking it's it off of Lonnie Donegan. Donegan, not, yeah. driven, yeah. And Johnny Cash's first son album opens with Rock Island Line, and he mentions with the, the toll, toll gate. gate. <laughs> yep. So, what should we hear on I the short let's, break? Yeah, let's, uh, let's hear something to uh, um, one of the great... Uh, uh, Hits track number six on here from Chaz McDavid and Nancy Whiskey with Freight Train. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. I don't know what train he's on. Would you tell me where he's gone? Got no hope, just nothing but the road. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Billy Bragg is here in the studio. His book before us from Faber and Faber. Um, many thanks to, to Becky also for sending along the, the book and a, and a tote bag. Yeah. Becky is pretty amazing. Mm. Um, the book Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. I love your uh, the, the subtitle yeah. of the book. Um, what do I base that on? That's what you want to, what is it about? Well, I mean, I think it's... Well, you've got to go big, too, yeah, yeah. I think, <laughs> if you're going to have some... <laughs> You've got to see um, British pop music of the of the 1960s and 70s as the, the Skiffle generation's coming of age, you know. It's not what the kids did during Skiffle, because Skiffle only really lasts from, like, 56 to 57. His peak Skiffle is over by 58. You know, we've just passed, actually, the 60th anniversary of um, the first meeting between John Lennon and Paul McCartney when uh, Lennon's Skiffle band, the Quarrymen, are playing... Um, a church fight in Walton, which is a suburb of Liverpool, and uh, McCartney comes along to see him, and and 
And uh, they're singing Lonnie Donegan's songs. There's a lovely tape of uh, Lennon singing uh, Putting on a Style, which is one of Donegan's songs. And they kind of they kind of hit it off one another. George Harrison comes and joins. And then slowly they evolve from the Quarrymen, a skiffle band, into the Silver Beatles and then ultimately the Beatles. But when they go to Hamburg in 1960... Um, leather jackets, electric guitars. They're really still the three guitar players from the Quarrymen. They're the, really, the, you know, they've got Pete Best, who's th- th- they hardly know, th- plays drums, and they've got their mate Stuart, who doesn't really play the bass anyway. He's oh. just coming like because he's got the haircut. He looks the best of them. You know. <laughs> and when they get to Hamburg um, and playing on the Reaper Barn. Uh, there's a guy uh, who's a German wrestler who, who's kind of their bodyguard and sort of tour manager. And he was interviewed by an American DJ in the 1960s at the height of Beatlemania. They went to see him and interview him. You know, what were they like when they first came here? And he, he said, he said, when they first came to Hamburg, they were playing too much of that washboard music, you know? <laughs> he said, the trouble with the English bands was they thought Lonnie Donegan was Elvis. So the implication of that is that when the Beatles got to Hamburg, they were still fundamentally a, a skiffle. skiffle band. Yeah. It was Skiffle group. Yeah, no, thank kidding. you. Exactly right. Thank you for that. You've why got the hang that? of this. But why is that? Like, why is it group? Because I noticed you said that earlier. Like, why band, is that? I think that... Ba- band implies a big band. I see. Okay. Group is a bit more, uh, uh, you know, like Home, a vocal group. Homespun. Like a, a, no, vocal... a small number. I think okay. it's to do with the number. Okay. I think a band in those days was, a you know, a, a, like a marching band or a, or, a, or a swing band, whereas group suggested a small... I think that's what it comes from. Because the, because the beat, they were all beat groups, weren't they? The Beatles were a beat group. They weren't a beat band, if you remember. Right, yeah, right. yeah it was a group. So that's how I think it comes from. Anyway, so yeah, the implication being that even when they got to Hamburg, the Beatles were still basically uh, uh, playing, you know, the music that Donegan had, had given them. And there's a very famous quote from uh, uh, George Harrison, who was asked once if the Beatles were influenced by the blues. And he said, yeah, of course we were. He said, you know, no Lead Belly, no Lonnie Donegan, no Lonnie Donegan, no Beatles. So what comes out of that, what flows out of that, is is a whole generation of of people. Um, can I tell you, Van Morrison? I already mentioned he was playing a skiffle when he was twelve Pete, year old. Peter Townsend, Pete Townsend, Dave yeah. David Bowie. Yeah. First gig he ever did was at a scout camp singing skiffle songs. Elton John, <laughs> Rod Stewart. Uh, we've mentioned uh, Led Zeppelin, but uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, you know, all those bands. There are very, very few um, British artists from the 1960s who didn't start playing guitar during the skiffle craze because it was a craze. It was a, like a hula hoop craze. It was absolutely. <laughs> the sales of guitars, acoustic guitars in Britain, went in a period of, of 18 months from 5,000 a year to 250,000 a year. You know, they were they just they were like cabbage patch dolls. I mean, literally. No, seriously. Uh, there's there's interviews where guy, you know, he said I had a guy come around waving ten pound under my nose wanted a guitar. I couldn't give him one. I mean, a guitar cost two pound fifty or three pounds, six pounds, something like that. Waving a ten pound note in my nose. If I could get a warehouse full, I could sell them all Free. in a week. I mean, it was absolute must have. So it's, it's, it's not, in that sense, it's not like any other kind of musical scene, in inverted commas, where really? musicians start. It's because they're the very first, right? Yeah. But there's no precedent before Skiffle, anything like that. These are our first teenagers. And crucially, it's, I think it was actually the whole thing is driven by young women. I think, and I wish I'd had more time to go into it in the book, but I didn't, because what happens is young women, basically the, the, the kids born in the 1940s who lived through rationing, the first cohort leaves school in 1955. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot of employment about, semi-skilled labour, working in factories like their mums did during the war. These young women are going to factories, they make money, 
They've got no nothing to spend it on except their housekeeping to their mum. So suddenly the sales of cosmetics, of clothing, of records, just rockets up. And, and then also coffee shops. They maybe. want this is the crucial thing. This is the crucial thing. They want their own social space. They don't want to go in the lion's tea house where their mum used to take them, where there's all that steamy food. They can't go in a pub without a man. It's just not socially acceptable. Um, you know, there are there are bars where women couldn't go even when I was a young man. There used to be bars where women weren't allowed. So well, there'd they, be separate rooms. Separate rooms. But they, they could you could go into a pub with a woman but but you couldn't go in on your own as a girl. So they find the coffee bars, the cappuccino machines come in, and they're very sophisticated. If you're young, they're looking to Milan, to Rome, to Paris. You know, it's kind of that Gene Seberg thing. You know, it's kind of rather than the Marilyn Monroe, which was what the, the idea that America was putting out, the big fin and all that, you know, right. the, which coming from there. This was a much more sophisticated vibe, and the coffee too. You know, the coffee was uh, incredibly sophisticated. <laughs> it was real coffee. Yeah, it was yeah. the real thing. But, but best of all, though, in the coffee shops, everything was covered with this incredibly high-tech stuff called Formica. <laughs> and that was a really big deal to them. They'd never seen anything like... It was the, again, they're trying to make the future happen. They're trying to take control of their culture. And my f- sense, I didn't have time to really explore it in the book, is that Skiffle comes to the coffee shops because that's where the young women are. Mm-hmm. It's this, the men are coming to the young because you can do a couple of things when you're a kid in the fifties. You can learn to play football and be good at football at school and impress all your mates, or you can play skiffle and impress a load of women. <laughs> so I think that that the the, the the young women finding their own social space is the driver because in the, if you look at the footage from the times. They're, they're, they're jiving with one another, young women. They're not jiving with greasy Teds, you know. Right. They're well, obviously teddy boys. Teddy sorry. boys, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're they're, they're they're practising in their rooms and jiving together. And when they come out, they jive together again. The Ted's just sort of stand around looking at them like this <laughs> in the clips. And I think they're jiving in their rooms and the boys are learning guitars in their rooms. Mm. And then they come together in the coffee shops and that. And from that comes British rock. You know, uh, Tommy Steele, the first Elvis impersonators, uh, you know, people like uh, Cliff Richard, Marty Wilde, these guys. And, and this is what supersedes Skiffle. It's clear that this you're passionate about this. Mm. Um, and so and you were born, as we were kind of saying jokingly earlier, at the peak of peak the Skiffle. Peak Skiffle, 1957. Yeah. So how did it sort of, did this impact your 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 youth? Where, were you like, really. kind of born with a guitar in your hands? No, or? no, no, no. But um, for a long time I sort of talked to people who were around at the time and it's clear that something really weird happened to them. Are you familiar with John Peel at all, the British DJ? I've heard the name. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he kind of discovered me and the Smiths and Led Zeppelin and the Faces oh, and he, uh, he, Mark Bolan. And, well, thanks, yeah. John Peel. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of like a giant, really. If you could get on his show, you you were you were really there. He really was a an amazing, amazing guy. He once invited me to come and have dinner with him and Lonnie Donegan, which was interesting to me, to meet <gasps> Donegan. He's a nice, you know, I always wanted to meet him. Because you already knew of him, of, of course. course. yeah, and yeah. I had a lot of him. And Peel invited me because he knew I was in, interested in Skiffle. Um, and what year would this be? Billy? 98, 99. Okay. Both Lonnie and John have passed away now, sadly. But uh, that's, uh, so I went along, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, it's after Mermaid Avenue, so Lonnie was a big fan of uh, Woody. He played. He was the first man to get Woody Guthrie in the charts at home. You know, yeah, in the in the fifties, um, Dead or Alive and uh, Grand Coulee Dam. He had so hits he for both of us. So then he heard your work. Yeah, and was he knew eager it. Yeah, yeah. He, well, well, he knew he knew about Mermaid Avenue. Yeah, because he's still a music fan. And uh, yeah, we got on like a house on fire. But John Peel didn't really say anything. He didn't get in the conversation. He kind of just sat there. And, and I thought, because my record plugger was there as well, because he wanted to meet Donegan. And driving home with the plugger, I said, "Well, what's up with Peel? You didn't say nothing." And my plugger was like, "Yeah, Bill, you don't know what happened here, do you? Look, 
listen, John Peel needed you to be there because he's so in awe of Lonnie Donegan. He needed you to be there talking to Lonnie so he could kind of listen and sit in. I'm like, you're kidding me. He said, no. And I, and I, I confronted Peel about it. Next time I saw him at his house, um, at, at a, uh, we were doing a radio show there, and he went and got his original 78 of Rock Island Lion, and he sort of handed it to me, and his eyes filled up with tears, and I was like, okay. Something happened to those guys. Something really life-changing happened to those guys. And I, w I was interested to find out what it was because, I'll tell you for why, <laughs> it was very similar to what happened with me and Punk. When I saw The Clash in 1977, you know, it was, it was like them seeing Donegan. Donegan imparted a message to British youth that's possibly the most revolutionary idea that, that they ever heard. One, you don't have to be a trained musician to make music. And two... You don't have to be an American to sing an American song. Now, The Clash told me that you don't have to be, uh, you know, the same age as Mick Jagger to be a rock star. You could be, you know, 19 like I was and play this stuff. You know, it was a, everyone needs that epiphany where they suddenly see themselves up there. And what Donegan does, he breaks the fourth wall of British pop culture. And he doesn't only talk to the kids, he hands them their way forward. He gives them the acoustic guitar. And that moment... That watershed moment is overshadowed hugely because what happens is, sadly, in, um, in 1967, uh, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Arts Club band comes out and also Rolling Stone appears for the first time. And simultaneously in America and in, in the United Kingdom, pop becomes rock. Beards are grown and stroked concepts suddenly start appearing on records. And if you're an Amer a British rock star in, say, 68, 69, and Rolling Stone are asking you who were your influences, you're not going to say Chas McDavitt and Nancy Whiskey. You're going to say Chuck Berry and Little Richard and, and Buddy Holly. So Skiffle is... Uh, seen as juvenilia by those guys. So that's why, because I was going to say, well, why don't you say that? Because George Harrison clearly... It still says. Van Morrison. Van Morrison made, made records with Donegan in, in the 90s. He never forgot, you know. So, But basically what happens to Skiffle is he's not forgotten, but it's kind of put in the attic with your first teddy bear and all those, um, you know, your school yearbook mm. where you don't want to see the photos. And nobody nobody mm. thinks about it anymore because what what superseded it was so powerful. And all that's left, really, because, because the majority of people who played Skiffle, because they were so young, they never made records. You know, there's only a handful of artists who actually made records. Uh, and in the end, it was uh, it was just a moment. But all that's left is loads and loads and loads and loads of photographs of callow youth with guitars and tea chest bass, a bass made out of a tea chest, like a box with a broom pole and a <laughs> piece of twine dunk, 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 on it. You know, that's literally. what they used. Yeah, literally, yeah, literally. And there's thousands of those. There's Can, thousands. So for the cover, I know yeah. our listeners can't see it, but everybody, look, Roots, Radicals and Rockers. Why this picture? Like, what? Tell me about this choice. Well, this, the, and can you describe is, it for yeah, the listeners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a guy playing a washboard looks like he's going to kill you. There's a bloke playing a <laughs> Uh, a Hofner 40 guitar who looks like he's seen Elvis Presley. There's another guy behind him playing an acoustic guitar who's leaning into the picture, but there's a guy laying on his back uh, playing a T-chest bass. You can see the twine on it. He's impersonating uh, uh, Bill Haley's bass player who used to sit lay on his back. And surrounding them in the background, there are loads of really old people laughing. <laughs> it's, the, it's the generation. This is the, And we chose this picture. It's a stock picture. No idea who it was. Because I couldn't find credits for no, it ever. No, 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 no. Yeah. We chose this picture because they looked like the goddamn Clash. <laughs> and but but listen, this is the great thing. Two weeks ago, I got a tweet from this guy's son-in-law. 
Yeah. He said, yes, my father-in-law on the front of your book. So I've spoken to this bloke. The bloke with the washboard <laughs> you, looks like he's going to kill you. you. Yeah. Yeah, it. I spoke to his name's Bill. And the name of the band is The Wild Five. And don't they look wild? They look... They look great. They're from Stockport in England. So we're going to finish off with some... Uh, 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 probably the key... Uh, skiffle, I reckon, the key skiffle song because this song, the title of this song is the kind of like the, the generational clarion call of skiffle. It's by a band called the Vipers. Uh, Vipers was a jazz term for somebody who joy, enjoyed, what should we call it, a jazz cigar, a jazz cigarette. What, do you have a euphemism in North America? A Viper? Oh, is it like a joint? <laughs> Can you say that on the radio? Yeah, yeah, that was what a Viper was. And the great thing about the Vipers was they never were a jazz, they never were a jazz band. They were just guys who came straight to skiffle. And they were produced by George Martin. And instead of jazzing them up by putting proper guitar players, he left them exactly as they were. So what you hear on the record is the raw sound of Skiffle. And as Lonnie Donegan became a more rounded entertainer, he kind of like uh, went the way of Elvis to Las Vegas, sadly. Well, you know, he was the first. Shiny. He was the first, you know. The Vipers, the Vipers with a Skiffle clash. And this is their clarion call to arms. It's Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O. And today on on Living Writers, Billy Bragg, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, I'm T. Hetzel. (laughs) I usually say something like, until next time. Must have had the radio on. Do people really listen to this stuff? It's very popular, and that jingle's catchy. Sort of gets inside your head. Yes, and such sophisticated lyrics too. It's the main reason the station's popular. Wasn't that just the grooviest? This is your fave DJ Ray Dio bringing you frantic music on the medium wave. And here's the new hit from the Wonder Wolves. Sorry, who did you say you are? I'm the doctor. This is K9. 
What in the name is that? Is that a robot dog? Affirmative. Oh, it talks amazing. Yes, he's a lurcher. Mr. Dio, aren't you? Yeah, I'm not really Radio. That's my professional name. Radio. Analysis suggests an attempted exploitation of the ambivalence of language for humorous purposes. Sorry? He means it's a pun. It's supposed to be funny. Yeah, it is funny. I think it's funny. Isn't it funny? Negative. Do you really think these people can invade us over the radio? I do. That WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Jingle wasn't composed with any musical or aesthetic considerations. Catchy, though. That's because it contains a built-in hypnotic harmonic, ensuring anyone who hears it is compelled to listen. Transmit the beam. What's happening, Doctor? They're transmitting the professor's detector beam out into space. And once it makes contact with their invasion force... We link in the whole early warning system. Our troops materialise at every military installation on the network, ready to take control. Oh, how thoughtful to set up a system so simple to subvert. And, Doctor, once we link to... WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Network, all Britain will be invaded. Then we shall have control of international communications. The world, I am happy to inform you, will be ours. Right. Oh, do you want me to stop the music playing? Negative. It is essential transmission is maintained. And we don't want anyone knowing anything's wrong. Well, then you'll need this. What is it? My script. I can't climb up the transmitter with this thing and introduce the next record. What? Well, you're the DJ now. Good luck. No, no, I... Wait! Listen to that, Doctor. The sound of the invasion. The sound of slavery. It's Radio Predicum. That's the invasion? They've hooked up to the radio station. What a commotion! Let me see. I, I can't read this. Transmission must continue, Mistress. Romana. Romana. <sighs> you are listening to... WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The hip and groovy place on the dial for all the sounds that are worth spinning. You'll never defeat humanity. This is your last chance, I warn you. Complete the process and you will regret it. I shall regret nothing. No! Get off me, human! It is done. No, no, don't. <laughs> now no one can stop it. Not even me. And certainly not you, Doctor. She's destroyed everything. You shouldn't have done that. Time to say goodbye, Doctor. The invasion begins. <laughs> There, get the sergeant quick. Gerald, there's something wrong with the wireless. Gerald. So I said to her, "You still, you still there? Hang on, I'll turn the radio down." Oh my Christ! I don't know this one, do you, Doris? No, I don't. It's pretty though, whatever it is. How do they do that? Call that music. That's not proper music. That's more like Marley.
to her. Your own signal is misfacing. I'm afraid you were right. It's time to say goodbye. Radio Frantic sets the trend. Playing music right to the end. Radio FM Ann Arbor. Ladies and gentlemen, boys, girls, and Emmys, back to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. we got a small panel today. My name is Charlie Brigham. Alongside me, Joshua Tenzer and Kellen Flynn. How are you doing today? Doing swell. Snow Spl- complaints. Splendid. <laughs> it's a little cold. The weather was weird today because it was just so sunny. You thought it would be warm, but then it, as soon as you stepped outside, your hands were going to fall off. Yeah, it's getting to the point where the sun melts the snow and then the cold weather freezes it back into ice. You're like, oh, this is perfect conditions to walk and drive in. Can't yeah, wait. Exactly. This is great. Exactly. I'll right, give you a quick uh, just overview of the agenda for today. going to talk some college hoops, both men's and women's. A little bit of NBA because Kellen wants to talk about his man, Luke Kennard. <laughs> then a few more topics to touch on. So just, just getting right into it. The Michigan women's basketball team is incredible this year. I mean, coming off arguably the best season in program history with a Sweet 16 berth last year, KBA and the new uh, the new and improved staff just they have not missed a beat. Currently, seven the record is 17 and two, uh, second in the Big Ten behind only or behind only Indiana, who is currently number six overall in the country. We're number seven. Big game tomorrow down in Columbus. Top 25 matchup. Michigan coming in at number seven in the country. Ohio State at 22. And then the biggest one on Monday. Top 10 matchup. Number six, Indiana versus uh, the number seven, Michigan Wolverines at home. If anyone is listening and you don't have plans for Monday night, pack the house. Chrysler Center, fill it up. It's going to be an incredible game. Yeah, I'm on the call for that game. Really, really excited. Uh, I mean, it should be a great atmosphere. Hopefully, fingers crossed uh, that we can pack Chrysler Center, like you said. And I mean, they're they're a great team. They deserve to have uh, a full crowd there. I mean, they're the number seven team in the country. I don't know what 